Open your Bibles to Mark 14. We're going to read through the first nine verses in just a moment, and uh, we'll give you that opportunity to find that text, Mark 14. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, and so if you can find your way there, we'd love for you to follow along. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, as we open your word together now, our prayer is that you would give us that help that we so desperately need. These words are spiritually discerned. It's not simply a matter of intellectual capacity for us, but there's a spiritual work that has to be done. And so we ask that you would give us your help, that you would assist us, that we may know this truth, that we would be changed by it, that in our souls we would be moved to action because of it. And let this great transformation of our lives, that transformation that Jesus Christ purchased with His own blood and sealed with His mighty resurrection, let that transformation take place in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we were last in Mark's gospel, we were finishing chapter 13. That's been almost two months ago, and that was a portion of scripture where Jesus told us about some of the signs of the end of the age, signs that we are living through right now. It gives us a sense of exhilaration, of expectation, Uh, these global events and forces that are at work right now would set our hearts on edge and create all kinds of fear, but the word of Christ is what secures us in this season of unusual circumstances and even pressures. And remember some of the key words that Jesus gave us. Be on guard, stay awake, stay alert. He described the very kinds of events that are sweeping the globe right now and said they're just the beginning of birth pains. It's a vivid illustration for all of you moms who are out there because you know that when those contractions begin to lay hold of your body, it is inevitable inevitable that a baby will be born. So the end of the age is coming and we are wise to be alert to it and prepare for it. But now Mark returns to the immediate story of Jesus making his way to the cross. We're in the middle of Passover week. We are only days from Christ's crucifixion. And this particular portion is a helpful and I would even say necessary reminder for people just like us in days of pandemic confusion and uncertainty that nothing is more important to our existence than the cross of Jesus Christ. While coronavirus may be the defining event of this decade or even this century, the cross is the defining event of the ages. There's nothing more important to developing and maintaining a right perspective on our lives in this very moment than our Lord Jesus Christ, His cross, and His empty tomb. Now follow along, please, as I read Mark 14, verses 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, 
a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body for burial beforehand. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now as we begin our time in this text today, let's make sure we understand the immediate setting. What's happening around them? Well, as Mark has recorded in the first two verses, there's a conspiracy to kill Jesus that is being plotted and hatched even at this very hour. They're seeking to arrest him by stealth, the text says. That is by craftiness, by cunning, by contrivance. Their, their whole purpose is to deceive and then accomplish what they have purposed, and that is to kill him. But they're fearful of the uproar. They're fearful that there will result some kind of commotion, some kind of confusion that would lead to riot. And if the Jews riot, then the Romans will come down hard. The whole celebration of Passover and this Holy Week will be disruptive. It's pernicious, isn't it, that such a cloak, uh, that such a cloak of, of religiousness would cover such a horrifically evil plot to kill Messiah. Our culture is presently in an uproar, isn't it? And there's a lot of commotion on this particular day. A lot of noise and confusion at this very hour that creates fear for many. There have always been plots and conspiracies of evil. People are asking, do you think coronavirus is a satanic conspiracy to destroy our religious freedoms? And you know, I think Romans 5.12 speaks very specifically to that point. In Romans 5 verse 12, the Apostle Paul says very simply, sin came into the world through one man, and he's speaking of Adam. And death came through that sin. And then death spread to all people because all have sinned. You know, in one sense I would say, I don't care if coronavirus came out of a research laboratory in Timbuktu or it flew out of a bat cave on a dark and stormy night. Death and everything that leads to death, including coronavirus, is the result of our sin. And the really difficult news of this day is not that there's a pandemic like coronavirus that threatens our physical health. There's actually an incurable disease in the souls of humanity that unless God himself intervenes will wipe out the entire human race. But the really good news on this day is that there is a remedy for this incurable disease. The incurable disease of our sin and the remedy has already been developed. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's what he is about to accomplish in this great holy week that the Jews called Passover and that we as followers of Christ celebrate. This is the, this is the cure for the incurable disease. But now Mark takes us to an event that puts our lives into proper perspective. 
And this event stands in contrast to those real plots of death and destruction for Messiah. It stands in contrast to the conspiracies of evil that were underway at that very hour. And he brings to the forefront a woman. Now I want us to talk a little bit about Mary of Bethany. Mark doesn't give us the name. You have to go to John's gospel to get her name and identity. But we know from looking at the full scope of gospel information that this is none other than Mary of Bethany. Several things that you may already know about her or that you should know about her. First of all, she is sister to Martha and Lazarus. Now, while Mark does not name her as Mary, as I said, you have to go to John's gospel, I also want to interject this. There are no less than seven women in the New Testament who go by the name Mary. And if you sometimes find yourself confused in trying to keep them separate one from the other, and which Mary are we talking about, you're in good company. All of us have been there and will be there. But this is Mary, the sister to Martha and Lazarus. If you go to Luke's gospel, you'll find that she is a devoted follower of Jesus. In Luke 10, verse 39, we read of Mary that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now that little phrase, sitting at the Lord's feet, creates a, a visual for us that needs to do more than just say, oh, that was her posture on that day or her proximity to Jesus. Historically, in the writings of that era, such a phrase would be a clear indication that she's actually a disciple of. It's kind of like saying she was frequently in his classroom. She frequently sat under his teaching lessons. As one author notes, in this particular setting, Luke considers her to be a disciple of Jesus. And in the eyes of her sister on this particular occasion, Mary is neglectful of the household responsibilities. Martha actually criticizes Mary, but that criticism brings a, a mild rebuke from Jesus himself who actually extols Mary's discipleship. And you read in Luke 10, verse 41 and 42, the Lord spoke to her sister, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so she becomes a model of devoted, attentive discipleship. There's a second thing about her that occurs in the Gospels that we need to keep in mind as we look at our story today. She is an eyewitness to Lazarus' resurrection. That full story is recorded in, Luke, or in John 11. It actually occurred, we believe, only a few weeks prior to this very moment. So it's fresh in her mind that she watched her brother succumb to a sickness that could not be cured, sent the word to Jesus. For whatever reason, he delayed his coming. And by the time he arrived in Bethany, her brother had been dead for four days in the grave. Decay had already begun. It's in that particular passage, though, that Jesus reveals himself to Mary, to Martha, to the others who are present, not merely as the one who has the power of resurrection and life, but he describes himself to her as the resurrection and life. So here is a woman who's filled with a deep love and gratitude for Jesus, who's not only heard his teaching, but stood at that graveside and listened to him command her dead brother to come out of the tomb. And John 11 records that the dead man came out. And that brings me to the final characteristic. She is described in John 11 as a beloved friend of Jesus. 
In verse 5 of that chapter, John records very specifically and poignantly, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I'm sure that she, much like the Apostle John and others, never got over the fact that the God of eternity who came to earth and took upon him human form loved her. And all of that teaching, the powerful experience of the resurrection of her brother, that overflowing love of Christ for her comes to a beautiful climax in Mark 14. And so as we return to the text and we begin to read again this story while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. That's the woman. All of that is behind her. All of that is compelling her and moving her forward. Now, Simon the leper, as we pause for just a moment to consider who he might be, we wish we had more information. There's really nothing in the text that would tell us the full story, but we can imagine that he actually should be more specifically called Simon the former leper. Leprosy would have disqualified him from any kind of physical or spiritual contact with family or friends. So the fact that they're assembled in his house, guests for this special meal would indicate that he is among those that Jesus has healed. The, the text of John 12 also tells us that Lazarus was present at this meal. And I want you to think for a moment of what it must have been like to have a place at that table where you have a man who was excluded from all of society and life because of a disease that was really just a slow decay of the flesh. And then another man seated there who had died and undergone the ultimate decay we all fear, but both of them healthy and whole, seated with family and with friends. What a, what a dinner setting that must have been. But now Mary comes, and as verse 3 teaches us, she extravagantly honors Jesus. She honors him, first of all, in an extravagant act of worship. An alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard is what Mark describes for us. Listen to what one historian writes about this type of flask and the kind of ointment uh, that it held. The costly perfume, he writes, is identified as nard, the aromatic oil extracted from a root native to India. To retain the fragrance of nard, enough ointment for one application was often sealed in a small alabaster flask. The long neck of the flask had to be broken to release the aroma. And the value of the perfume and its identification as nard suggests that it was a family heirloom that was passed on from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 3, there is the note that it was about a pound in weight. Mark simply says that it was very costly in verse 3. And then verse 5, he indicates that it was more than 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of a year's salary. Now, isn't it funny that we all think, wow, what a costly gift Mary has given. But this story points us not to the value of her gift so much as it points us to the value of the one to whom it is given, doesn't it? Well, she breaks the flask and pours it over his head, anointing the head of 
a dinner guest was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Psalm 23 even refers to this when David writes that beautiful psalm of the Lord shepherding care. He says in verse 5 of God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. That's a sign of affection. That's a sign of honor. And David is recounting the the truth, this encouraging reality that God looks upon him as a favored guest. So here, on this occasion, we might conclude that Mary has done for Jesus perhaps what Simon would normally do, but I think there's far more to it than just a woman saying, at this special dinner occasion, you're a special guest who needs uh, special acknowledgement. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, he notes that Mary took that expensive ointment and not only anointed the head of our Savior, but anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, before we get to the full understanding of what she was doing and the significance of it, I want you to look at verses 4 and 5 with me and notice that Mary, that Mary bears heavy criticism for her devotion to Jesus. In the first place, there's quiet indignation. Mark tells us that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, so they don't say it out loud yet, but within their hearts they have begun to form an angry criticism of what she has done. Why was this ointment wasted like that? That's a strong word for something that is done so extravagantly in honor of Messiah. But their estimation of her act at this point is that it's thoughtless, that it's careless, that it might have been better employed in other ways. It's a foreshadowing of how many, even in our day, view the sacrifice of Christ's life. Some of you have considered the story of the cross the brutal death of Jesus Christ, His miraculous resurrection, or at least the eyewitness accounts of that. And and to this point, you've said to yourself, what a waste. I never asked Jesus to die for me. I'm not the bad of a person. I'm not sure I actually need a Savior. And in your estimation, it seems like a waste. Well, there were others on that night who saw this extravagant act of devotion as a waste. There's not only quiet indignation, but there is, in the second place, self-righteous, and I'm using this term because it's popular in our day and age, self-righteous wokeness. We sometimes talk about a culture or an individual or a group who are woke to some greater reality that before they had not had an awareness of. And so the disciples, some of them apparently say, This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. If you go to John's gospel, you'll find out it's actually Judas who says that. It sounds spiritual on the surface, doesn't it? After all, the poor are in great need. Even in our day and age, there's been a big push for donations. Our church has participated in some of that. Many of you have given to good causes. So is the Lord himself indifferent to the needs of the poor? Is Mary insensitive to the needs of the poor around her? I don't think that's the point at all. But some at that table would cloak their own greed and ambition with a self-righteous judgment of her act, saying... It would have been better if she had done it a different way. Well, all that they are thinking, the quiet indignation, the words of Judas spill over then into an angry reprimand. And the text says that they, 
not just Judas, they scolded her. That word scolding, it includes the idea of being angry and enraged, being indignant over someone's actions, to even murmur against her. Well, it's not a silent murmuring. They're, they're doing it out loud. I put myself in Mary's place, as many of you probably are at this moment, thinking, you know, what a painful moment for her. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of this kind of criticism, when you knew your motives were pure, you knew your heart was untainted in, it, in its motive, it's painful to be judged and criticized and scolded when you haven't done anything wrong. It's even more painful when what you have done was intended to bless and honor. You know, this kind of extravagant devotion to Christ will always confuse and even offend some. But the value of a gift such as this is never measured in its monetary terms alone. Rather, it is measured in the sacrifice and motivation behind the gift. Remember just two chapters earlier. I know it's been a couple of months since we were there in our study of Mark's gospel. But the widow in the temple who came and Jesus and the disciples were watching this offering unfold. And that widow gave two small coins, mites, as they are called in some English translations. And Jesus said she's put in more than everybody else because she gave all that she had to live on. By the estimation of some, I'm sure they thought that was wasted. She should have saved it. Remember when I preached through this, I I told you it was about about the equivalent amount of what a hot dog and Pepsi would cost you at Costco. And there were some who probably assessed her gift as a way, saying she should have fed herself with it. For Mary, the precious ointment that might have not only been sold and given to the poor, it actually was probably something that in in human terms secured her financial future. Maybe it was her retirement fund. Maybe it was something that she planned to pass along to other family members as maybe her mother had passed it on to her. We don't know those particular details. Those who who, uh, assess it, though, as a waste fail to see the real value. For Jesus, by week's end, he will lay down his life, shed his blood on the cross, sparing no expense. For what? for your pardon and mine, sparing no part of his life in order that we might be redeemed. There were some then, just as there are those now, who see his death as a waste. But from heaven's perspective and from the perspective of sinners who know they are incurably sick by this sin, it is the most extravagant and glorious outpouring ever known. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't let this criticism continue where he steps in and Jesus himself estimates the the value of Mary's work. He values her devotion, first of all, by confronting the self-righteous critic. Leave her alone, he says. Why do you trouble her? He uses a word that means not simply just to kind of harass her. It's a word that actually conveys the idea that they're beating her up. Verbally, emotionally, spiritually. And Jesus comes to her defense and says to 
this little mob of dogs, leave her alone. You know, there will always be those who think they know better than you as to what service to God ought to look like or what a really significant life work ought to be. But there's only one person's justification and vindication you need at the end of your days, and that is the justification of Jesus Christ. The question for all of us today is, what does he think of the way I live my life? What does he think of the words that I choose, of the service that I offer, the gifts that I give, the employment that I'm pursuing? What does he think? Jesus confronts those self-righteous critics and puts their criticism to a stop and then says, look at verse 6, that her work is valuable. He appraises the true value of her action and uses these words, it's a beautiful work. She has done what she could. Wouldn't that be a marvelous moment? Not just for Mary, but for anyone who has offered themselves, offered something of, of extraordinary value to Jesus and for him to smile over it and then describe it as beautiful. And then notice, he is aware of her motivation, of what lies behind it, saying that she, much like that widow in the temple, has done what she could. That is, she's done what she is able to do. One author writes of this, others would have their own forms of service to offer. This was the contribution which Mary was uniquely in a position to make. And here are the disciples judging by the appearance of things, but here is Jesus judging by the motive of the heart. And then he draws an important contrast. Look at the next phrase with me, if you will, please. He actually says to them, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Now, it's important that we remember the, the scope of Christ's ministry to this point. He has never demeaned or ignored the poor, but rather the, the larger part of his ministry, not just of preaching and teaching, but of healing, of feeding, of loving, of serving people has been done in the poorer classes. You cannot look at his life and say that this is a man who has no care for the poor. He esteems them highly. He has made his living with them from the time he was born to very poor parents and grew up in Nazareth, a town that nobody had regard for. This is a man who loves and esteems and serves the poor. But he's establishing a contrast here. Though he himself would have perfectly fulfilled the law of God as recorded in Deuteronomy 15.11 that tells us there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, the word of the Lord, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus has done all this, but here he is taking something that actually is precious and valuable to him, the poor, and saying, you will not always have me with you. And there's the contrast drawn that shows the infinite value of Christ, even above those that he holds very dear. So it's a clear statement that he is actually of much greater value than even the most important cause caring for the poor on planet Earth. As I was thinking about this earlier this morning, the Lord took my mind back to Mark 8, 34 and that tremendous, powerful call of Christ to discipleship. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus said very simply, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. Mary has denied herself the earthly security of a year's salary in order to lavish her love on Jesus. She has denied herself the valuable heirloom, perhaps that her own mother passed on to her. She has denied herself the the temporary shelter of knowing, I got that thing in the safe. And why would she do that? How could she do that? The only answer can be that she sees in Jesus the eternal value that he is. I wonder what you are uniquely positioned to contribute to Jesus today. It, this is not about an offering. And we're not going to, Matt's not going to come back up and, and take a special offering of, of sacrifice. It, it, and it's not even about monetary things or material possessions. The question is so much bigger than that. What are you uniquely positioned to contribute to the cause of Christ that is to promote his infinite, uh, the, the estimate of his infinite worth in today's mindset. You say, wait, tell, tell me how you're getting there. All right, let, let's go back to the text. So hold that thought. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 8. For he interprets the significance of her action. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. What? Now that's one of those mind-blowing moments where Judas and the rest of the disciples are probably like, what are you talking about? All we know is that this room is filled with the fragrance of this very expensive ointment. We're all sitting here wondering why she didn't sell it, give it to the poor, doing, do something really significant with it. She's poured it out on you, and as much as we love you, Jesus, it just seems like a waste. Oh, but Jesus is helping them understand there's no waste in it at all. She's anointed my body before him for burial. I wonder if, because she's been sitting at Jesus' feet, for weeks and months and even years, is she the only one in the room who really understands the significance of this week, of the Passover that's coming, and that they are all seated in the presence of God's only Passover lamb who will take away the sins of the world? I think she has a greater awareness of of what Jesus is doing in this particular week, certainly than anyone else in the room, maybe not to the full extent, but I believe she has anointed him because she sees his death is imminent, but she also knows her salvation and the resurrection of all those who believe in Jesus is tied to that death. It's actually a profound gospel act And you say, why would you say it's a profound gospel act? Not only is it the expression of her faith in God's own lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus himself is about to memorialize her devotion. Look at verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is so much more than just a a really sweet moment of personal interaction between a disciple and Jesus. It's a powerful testimony of her faith in the life and in the death of Jesus Christ for her salvation. As I noted a moment ago, she sat at the feet of Jesus 
for many days, listening to his teaching, soaking her heart in the truth of who he was and what he had done. She stood at the tomb of her brother four days after his burial, knowing full well that his body had already begun to decay and to stink, and heard the powerful command of the one who is the resurrection and the life, command her brother out of that grave. And now the week of Passover, the work of redemption, planned from before the foundation of the world, is coming to its horrific and yet glorious climax. This is a woman who sees beyond the immediate conspiracies to destroy Jesus or to overthrow the Roman government, who sees beyond the pressing needs of her own household, chores that need to be done, monetary considerations that rest upon her shoulders and Martha's and Lazarus. This is a woman who is so captivated by all that Jesus is and all that he does, looks around and says, what can I offer to him in consecration, in service, in profession? found personal worship that would live as a testimony of gospel truth for the generations. Nobody else saw it for what it was in that moment, but Jesus did. And because it was all centered in him and showed the glorious value of the Christ, he chooses to include it in the record of the gospel for all eternity. The value of Mary's extravagant gift is not in the alabaster flask or the precious ointment imported from India. It's in the person on whom she lavished her love and service. It's Jesus who is the great treasure of this story. I am both convicted and encouraged by this. I'm convicted because I think I'm so much more like the disciples Worried about conspiracy theories, worried about paying the bills, worried about household chores, worried about who's going to clean up the meal after we're done today. And I ought to be like Mary, just looking at Jesus, centering my heart, my life, my will, my fears, bringing it all to him and saying, Jesus, you are the true treasure. And because you are who you are, and because you have done what you will done, we are saved the English pastor and hymn writer Isaac Watts captured in the words of an old and beloved hymn the same profound truth that Mary grasped. Most of us don't think of Isaac Watts as a pastor, but he was. And in preparing for a communion service one day, and oh, don't we all long to share the Lord's table. While, while we were singing, and it was good in this room, Matt leaned over and he said, what's it going to be like when everybody's back? Oh, can't wait for that. And what's it going to be like when we can actually be together to share the Lord's table? A precious time for sure. And because the Lord's table has always been precious to God's people, it calls for our preparation. Well, as a pastor, he actually wrote hymns. And please don't ask me to start writing hymns for our communion services. I'm no Isaac Watts. But in 1707, as he was preparing for a communion service, some of the lines of a now well-known hymn came to him. And as he pondered the cost of Christ's sacrifice for his salvation, Watts was compelled to, to express his heart's uh, response with these words, Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, 
my life, my all. Mary's devotion shows us the infinite value of Christ. And as we think through this particular text today, the point is not to, to, to gin up some kind of, of impressive, self-sacrificial movement here. It's actually to get you to look harder, deeper, more intently, more personally at Jesus. I mean, we could, we could create some kind of sacrifice campaign. And, and we're creative enough where we could come up with all kinds of, of ways to do that. But the kind of, of extravagant sacrifice, devotion, service that Jesus longs for you and me to offer to him actually is rooted in who he is. So before we even talk about what you might do as an act of worship, an act of service, the real question is, do you know Jesus Christ in such a personal way that you would happily part with a year's wages for just a moment of extravagant honor? So we're even back to the lines of the hymn we sang at the outset, I trade my treasures, all my reward, just to know you. May God give us such a profound understanding of who Jesus is that we, like Mary, would devote ourselves entirely to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you are the great treasure of life, that to know you as you are, to know you for all that you have done from creating the world to upholding it at this very moment by your powerful word to the work of redemption that you accomplished at the cross to your resurrection and ascension on high where the word tells us you now rule and reign and you are bringing all things in subjection under your feet. There's so much to your work that we have not yet begun to comprehend. But as we know you, we like Mary are compelled to devote ourselves to you. Would you stir us on this day? Shake us out of our spiritual lethargy. Stir in our hearts the same kind of devotion. Cause us to be people who look to you and value you above all else. Preserve us from being caught up in conspiracies, some of which are, are real. It's been that way for thousands of years as the adversary opposes your work of righteousness and salvation. But bring us to that sweet place of both peace and motivation where we live for what is eternally valuable, for what is eternally true, for, for what is eternally unshakable. And all of that begins in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to know you to worship you, to serve together. Let your blessing rest upon Gospel Hope Church today. Let your blessing rest upon our friends uh, who are, are participating with us from afar. And oh Lord God, let the gospel message continue to spread through this earth until the nations which Jesus created and the nations which he has purchased with his own blood are his full inheritance. Grant it, fulfill it, do it on this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.